We are in Romans once again, the gospel of God concerning his son. I had one of those uh, experiences again this week where you see a passage of scripture in a whole new way, uh, like you've been reading it your whole life and you think you pretty much get it, you know, kind of understand it, and, and then you see something that you've never noticed before, and it throws you all off balance, and all of a sudden you wonder if you ever really understood it at all. And what I'm describing is not the discovery of a new point of doctrine, so you can rest easy about that. But instead, it's just a, a new layer or a new depth of insight uh, to me into what I think Paul is expressing in the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. Last week, we saw that the word therefore in chapter 12, uh, verse 1, represents a hinge point between Paul's detailed explanation of the gospel in Romans 1 through 11 and his applications uh, of the implications of the gospel in chapters 12 to 15 for Christian lifestyle, which we are uh, entering into this morning. So he wrote in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The title that I've given to today's message is A Christian's Self-Assessment, because at verse 3, Paul begins a discussion of what it means to live out the implications of the gospel in a variety of relationships, beginning with our relationship to ourself here in verses 3 through 8. He goes on in verses 9 to 16 of chapter 12 to talk about our relationships uh, to one another in the family of God. In uh, verses 17 to 21, our relationships to our enemies. Uh, Chapter 13, 1 through 7, our relationship to the government. Chapter 13, 8 through 10, our relationships to our neighbors. And then in chapters 14 to 15, uh, an extended discussion of our relationships with those among us who are weak, spiritually weak, weak consciences, weak, weak in spirit. This is going to be an exciting several weeks now as we move forward, actually months, and, and uh, we're going to take a break for Christmas, but then we'll wrap up uh, Romans in probably right around the beginning of February. So let's stand together this morning and read our text, Romans twelve three through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does act of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. You may be seated. Just a reminder that in your program today is a uh, 
sermon notes outline and would encourage you to uh, to use that. Paul begins by addressing our relationships with ourselves in light of the gospel. And the thing that occurred to me this week is that as Paul does that, he's speaking directly to issues of self-image and self-esteem that emerge from the transformation that he talks about in verse 2 that results in a renewed mind. Uh, Self-image and self-esteem have received a great deal of attention, haven't they, in the past several decades in the worlds of psychology, education, child development, parenting, business, leadership, and more. We might observe that the emphasis that moderns place on self-esteem is widespread. It's pervasive. And I'm so glad for that reason that the Bible actually has a great deal to say on the subject uh, that puts it in perspective. Let's begin with some basics. What, what do we mean when we talk about self-image anyway? Well, self-image can be understood as an internalized mental picture that you have of yourself. It includes the ways that you see and perceive of yourself, whether physically, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, socially, sexually, occupationally, uh, whatever I may have left out, the whole of your being. And and it also encompasses the ways that you believe others perceive you in any and all of those areas. And so you take their perception and you add it to your own. You integrate it into your own self-image. So self-image is really about how you see yourself and somewhat globally, some, somewhat comprehensively. Self-esteem, on the other hand, is about how you value yourself, uh, your sense of self-worth. That is, taking your self-image, the way you perceive of yourself, into consideration. Your self-esteem has to do with the degree of value that you then assign to yourself. Our self-esteem is often related to the value that others assign to us, especially significant others. Um, our parents, for example, our families, our spouse, our close friends, our teachers, employers, co-workers, and others whose opinions of us we allow to enter into the equation. To say that our society's focus on self-esteem borders on obsession may be an understatement. As a culture, we, we seem to have come to regard high self-esteem as the holy grail of personal development. But notice with me that rather than encouraging either high or low self-esteem, Paul calls on us as Christ followers to a sober self-assessment. Sober self-assessment. For by the grace given to me, he writes, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now I mentioned that in last week that in verse 1, Paul, Paul doesn't kind of lower the boom when he says, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which he could have. He kind of just came alongside them and 
And the word there is parakaleo. I, I come alongside you as a brother, as an equal. In light of the gospel, this is what we ought to do, don't you think? And that's where Paul is coming from in verse 1. But notice Paul's gentle assertion of his authority as an apostle here in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, the grace given to him is a way of describing his calling as an apostle, his unique role. The, that phrase, I say to you then, is one that Jesus also used repeatedly. And usually uh, came with the words, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, when Jesus prefaced his teaching with that phrase, it was a signal to his hearers that he meant to be heard, that he meant to be taken seriously, that he meant to be heeded. And in the same way, so Paul does the same thing here. So we also ought to pay attention to what he's saying. And I don't want the opportunity to pass for us to notice that, that word for at the start of verse 3. He wants his readers to understand that what he's about to say flows directly from the command he's just given in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Three times in the English translation of verse 3, the word think appears. Uh, the mind that is being renewed by the Spirit of God does not lead us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But, Paul says, to think with sober judgment. The renewed mind is a mind that makes a sober self-assessment. And that word sober is important for us to understand as well. The, that Paul had to admonish his readers to think of themselves with sober judgment points out how out of touch with reality our own self-perceptions can become. And sobriety here means precisely what we think it means. It's the opposite of intoxication. To be sober means to be completely in touch with reality. Uh, in this case, the reality about who we really are. So what's Paul saying? You know, I think a, a knee-jerk reaction from a person steeped in the values of our contemporary culture might be to conclude that Paul's advocating for Christians to embrace low self-esteem. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think on the contrary, Paul's saying that our self-assessment should be neither too high nor too low. I'm using the term self-assessment because I, I don't particularly like the term self-image or self-esteem for what Paul's trying to describe here. But I think that the term self-assessment draws together both concepts. You know, you may have heard someone say along the way, I've heard it many times through the years, that when Jesus said, in response to the question, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That what, he was, what Jesus was trying to communicate is that in order to love others, you really have to focus first on loving yourself. And then Whitney Houston comes along. 
and tells us that the greatest love of all is learning to love ourselves. And those who believe this would say, well, see, there it is. Whitney said it. It's got to be true. You really need to focus on loving yourself. Your focus really needs to be first on yourself, of getting about the task of raising your own self-esteem. Because the problem in your ability to love is your self-esteem. Well, the problem with that is that Jesus never said that. And in fact, Paul, in Ephesians 5, in speaking to wives, or to husbands, in their relationships to their wives, tells us to love our wives as we love ourselves. And then he goes on, he says, but no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. The fact is that fundamentally all of us already love ourselves because no one ever hated his own flesh. Fundamentally, we are already all about ourselves. Whitney was probably right about this, that if the greatest love of all is loving ourselves, then it, in fact, is easy to achieve Um, because we're already doing it very naturally. It's the most natural thing to love ourselves. We shouldn't ignore where it is that Paul begins with warning against thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Despite all the warnings of our culture about the dangers of low self-esteem, the greater danger, Paul thinks and Jesus thought, is self-centeredness and egocentricity. Paul may be calling us to sobriety because he knows we're all egoholics. I can't help thinking that with the idea of sober judgment comes also a concern for a negative self-assessment. Sober judgment, clear, straight thinking about ourselves, neither too high nor too low, will enable us to effectively serve others. And to that end, Paul says, the first standard by which we are to assess ourselves is our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to give us two standards of measure here in this passage. So at verse 3 again, For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Notice that latter phrase, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Most of us in reading that just kind of automatically assume that The measure of our faith means the quantity of faith, the amount of faith that we possess or we exercise. In other words, we think that Paul is saying that God obviously gives some people more faith than others, and so our self-assessment should be in line with the amount of faith that we personally possess. The problem with that view is at least threefold. First of all, it's simply too vague 
a notion to be of any help to us whatsoever. I mean, I don't know how much faith I have. I don't. You don't know how much faith you have. It's, it's just too ethereal. Jesus, in te- talking to his disciples, said, "If any of you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, so we none of us have much, right? Fundamentally true." Secondly, it just seems unlikely in the context of all that Paul's already been saying in Romans. And third, the word translated measure nearly always means a standard of measure, not a quantity. Not a measured amount. I've grappled with this over the past several days, and here's what makes sense to me, having arrived on Sunday morning and needing to say something about it. Biblically speaking... Faith isn't something that any of us possess unless and until God grants it to us as a gift. Faith is never considered in the Bible as something that we self-generate, that we ought to possess on our own. One of the places we see that expressed most clearly is in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where he wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this, that is the faith by which you're saved, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No no one's going to say, well, I generated that faith, and so I'm a Christian because God was impressed with the quantity of my faith. Not at all the reality. Grace is, our faith is always a gift of God's grace. So what we should probably understand Paul to be saying in Romans 12, 3 is this, each of you has received as a gift the faith in Christ by which you are saved, and it is by that measure that you are to assess yourselves. So what that means is that as we stand before God, as we stand before the cross, we're standing on a level plane. Nobody big, nobody little. We stand before him equal, Remember what Paul wrote back in chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And that's the bad news, isn't it? And we memorize that verse. What we ought to memorize along with it is the rest of the verse. (laughs) All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. If you ever listened to the teaching of Timothy Keller, you may have heard his summary of the gospel. He says, here's the gospel. You are more sinful and desperately wicked than you ever dared think. And at the same time, you are more loved, accepted, and forgiven than you ever dared imagine. I love that. And that is the gospel. So you see, the gospel prevents us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we should, and the gospel prevents us from thinking more lowly of ourselves than we should. Here in Romans 12, 3 then, Paul wants us to understand 
that a sober self-assessment begins with remembering who we are in Christ because of the gospel. Desperately wicked and sinful. Simultaneously loved, accepted, and forgiven. So the first measure that Paul gives us by which we evaluate ourselves is the gospel that we have believed and by which we are saved. The second standard of evaluation that Paul offers us here is the effective use of the gifts that God has given us for building up one another. You say, well, how's that a standard of measure? Well, stay tuned. We'll get to the gifts in just a moment, but before we get there, we need to understand what Paul's saying in verses 4 and 5. Which is, I think, that a Christian self-image includes radical identification with the church, which is the body of Christ. Radical identification. In verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. The Christian faith is essentially a corporate experience. Although each of us uh, members has come by a separate pathway, a separate calling, a separate exercise of faith, the believing community lives out its Christian experience in fellowship with one another. Some of the words that we use in the Christian community, many of them shape dramatically the way we think about what the Christian life ought to be. And one of the phrases that's been kicked around now for almost a century is the the description of uh, the Christian life as a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is that. But doesn't that phrase also so speak to our American individualism? This is just all about me and Jesus. It has nothing to do with you. Don't you dare criticize me or the way I live out my Christian faith or the way I exercise it because this is just me and Jesus. Well, no, it's not. No, it's not. John Donne wrote that no man is an island. There are a lot of what we might call Lone Ranger Christians these days. They're out riding the range. Because that's where church happens for them. (laughs) Sorry. The Bible doesn't allow that. Lone Ranger Christianity is a contradiction in terms. See, we can no longer fully understand ourselves for talking about a sober self-assessment. We can no longer fully understand ourselves as individuals independent of the other members of the body of Christ. So your personal assessment of who you are, if you are in Christ, has to include the fact that we are members one of another. You're a member of others and they are members of you. You're dependent on them, they are dependent on you. 
You need to show up. You need to be present. Verse 5, so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. You as a new creation in Christ cannot define yourself independent of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, Paul says that God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. God, when, when God saved you by his grace, in that moment he placed you in the body of Christ. He placed you in the church. Not just theoretically, not just ethereally, not just mystically, but he placed you in the church with a particular role, with a particular profile, with a particular portfolio of how he expected you then to live and to function. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which I read earlier, continues in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So arriving at a correct view of ourselves is to remember to whom we belong. To God, to our church body, not to ourselves, because we belong to Jesus Christ. Well, what are spiritual gifts? Here's a simple, simple definition that I wrote in the wee hours of the morning. Gifts are endowments freely given by God to each and every believer to enable us to serve one another. Does that sound like a fair definition? Endowments freely given by God to each and every believer to enable us to serve one another. They're not natural talents. They're not natural inclinations. They may mesh with natural talents and natural inclinations because God doesn't make mistakes in his design of us. But they are divine empowerments. They are the ways, the avenues, the means through which the Holy Spirit works through you in the lives of others. They are spiritual enablements that equip you to share the work of the Holy Spirit with others. Verses 4 and 5, Paul wrote, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 4.10, As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. This phrase that Paul uses here, God's varied grace, is really cool. I mean, there are some of those Greek words that are really boring and just kind of eat. This one's awesome. When I was growing up, I, I, I'm old enough to have been in a church that used the King James Version, which is the version that Jesus used. But... Um, but then we, uh, as we became more sophisticated, we moved to the New American Standard Bible. 
It's funny, funny the way evangelicals kind of migrate from one translation to another. But in the King James and the New American Standard Bible, the phrase is the manifold grace of God. The manifold grace of God. In the NIV, which we then migrated to, New International Version, it's translated God's grace in its various forms. And then I was reading a a paraphrase of the Bible is called the Cotton Patch Version of the Bible. And in the Cotton Patch Version of the Bible, this is referred to as God's polka dot grace. <laughs> and I thought, man, i got, I got to check out where that came from. And doggone it, the Greek word means that. It means multicolored. It means variegated. It means it speaks to diversity and, and uh, complexity. The manifold grace of God, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's polka dot grace. God is the giver of the gifts. He gets to decide who receives which ones, but you are accountable to God for the investment of the gifts that you've received to build up the church and to advance its mission. And you can't understand yourself apart from your giftedness. Understanding and engaging your gifts is an essential element of an accurate self-image now that you are in Christ. Do you understand that? The exercise of your gift is non-optional. And you will never fully understand who you are in Christ if you don't go down this road of figuring out how God has designed you, how he has spiritually equipped you for ministry. And you won't experience joy and freedom in the Christian life until you do. Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Here in Romans 12, Paul presents a sample listing of seven gifts. I've come to the conclusion in my study over the years of the various lists in the Bible. There's one here in Romans 12. There's another in 1 Corinthians 12. There's another one in Ephesians 4. And there's another shorter list in 1 Peter 4. I've come to the conclusion that they're just sample lists. There's some overlap between them. Uh, but what the thing that I have also come to conclude is that there's there are lots more gifts than we really realize. Paul never meant to provide an exhaustive list. God's manifold grace, God's diverse expressions of grace through his people. So let's just look at the ones that Paul gives us here in this list. The first one is prophecy. Prophecy. Let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith. Now, I chose that particular picture because people that have gift of prophecy are usually in your face. That's kind of the nature of the gift. Uh, the, the whole thrust of the gift of prophecy is to work conviction in God's people. And, and so they'll be in your face about truth. They're not trying to incite guilt, false guilt. They're trying to con- bring conviction. It's the Spirit working through them to bring conviction to the church about things that are true. 
about God and about themselves and about the world and about Jesus. If prophecy is your gift, Paul says, use it in proportion to our faith. Prophecy in the church today, on most occasions, on nearly every occasion, is not foretelling, as in predicting what's to come, but forthtelling that which God has already revealed. That word proportion is the word from which we get our word analogy. It's the Greek word analogia. Uh, analog, or, uh, analogy, analog, analogous. It means to move from one point of a comparison to the other. And I don't know why the translators of the English Standard Version used the, the personal pronoun our faith there. Because in the Greek, it's a definite article in proportion to the faith. There's nothing subjective about it. He's talking about uh, the faith, as Jude put it, once delivered to all the saints. It is essential Christianity. So what I think he's saying here is that if prophecy is your gift, then Make sure that as you exercise that gift, you are exercising it in agreement with the faith. The prophet is to make sure that his message does not in any way contradict sound doctrine, does not in any way contradict the clear teaching of the Word of God. There are movements in in the church today, in, in the United States in particular, but in other parts of the world as well, where people are rising up and claiming prophetic authority and, and teaching doctrines that are not consistent with Orthodox Christian faith. They're doing exactly what Paul says not to do here. Um, and, and those movements are, are, are gaining uh, ground. It's very concerning, ought to be very concerning to all of us. Well, he goes on in, in the next gift that he's, Uh, points to is the gift of service or serving. If your gift is service, then use your gift in serving. The word is diakonia. It's the word from which we get our word deacon. It means servant. And and the word uh, serving here is used, diakonia is used in a variety of ways in the scripture, all the way from the teaching of the apostles of serving tables in Acts chapter 6. And, and so it's a, it's a kind of a catch-all. But a, but a person who has the gift of serving is usually the person that comes alongside others and says, hey, how can I help? How can I support what you're doing? What can I do to make things easier so that you can accomplish the things that, that God has called you to accomplish? They're doers, and uh, they're desperately needed in the church. If you want to see some great servants, stop by the church building any day of the week. See who's volunteering out there. There's a tremendous group of servants that are are working every day out there. The next gift that Paul points to is teaching. The one who teaches in his or her teaching. Use your gift in your teaching. Well, it seems like a kind of a no-brainer. But you can also be lazy in in your teaching. And here's what I know because this, I think, is my primary gift. I know that I can exercise the gift in my own power. 
and it falls flat. Nobody gets anything. Uh, and yet in those places of times when I'm weak and I'm more, most dependent on the Spirit of God, most conscious of my dependency on the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God moves. The role of a teacher is to teach God's Word with accuracy, not simply for the goal of um, gaining knowledge or, or transmitting knowledge, but so that God's people will live intelligently in light of God's Word. Next gift is exhortation. The one who exhorts in his or her exhortation. And the reason I chose the picture you're looking at right now is that, that this word is the same word Paul used in Romans 12.1, parakaleo. It means to come alongside. And, and to call someone forward, to call someone out. And so things like encouragement and admonishment and comforting and consoling and counseling all fit this particular gift. It's the person that comes alongside another and and ministers from that position. The next gift is contributing. Let Let the one who contributes use their gift in generosity. In generosity. And there are some people who find joy in being generous, of giving of their resources, whether financial or otherwise. They just love it. They just get great joy in giving. And God bless them, right? We appreciate them. But the word generosity also has this sense of giving without ulterior motives. So that when you give, you don't need somebody to blow a horn while you're giving to call attention to yourself. There's no quid pro quo, as we're hearing in the news. That's something for something. Not, I don't give so as to get, but I give without ulterior motive, without any self-serving motives, and I give generously. And 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 the, you know we often think the one who has the gift of giving might be someone wealthy, <laughs> but that's not at all what the Bible says. There may be people who are very poor who are still incredibly generous. You know, one of the things that we've observed through the years with our food drives for the backpacks program, because we used to do food drives out in the community and we'd go house to house and, and leave a flyer and then come back the next week and people would leave bags on their front door. And it was in some of the poorest neighborhoods that the that, that people were the most generous. It has nothing to do with your bank account. It has to do with the way God has gifted you and wired you. And then uh, number six here is leadership. Leadership. The one who leads, let him lead with zeal. With zeal, with enthusiasm. Um, I I don't know what the opposite of that might be. It might be, you know, lethargy, boredom, um, resentment, bitterness. I, I don't know. But he's saying lead with zeal. And the word here is proistomai. It means to stand before people. And so it can take a lot of different forms. It can, it can be one who simply is very influential because of who they are, who lead others very naturally, or it can be someone who's in a, a position of leadership, of the title of, title of pastor or elder or, or some other uh, title within the church. But this is the person who leads others and who stands as a model of Christian character, of Christian lifestyle, and, and is willing to be evaluated on that basis. And then the final one here is mercy. 
The one who does acts of mercy, let him use that gift with cheerfulness. And, and the gift of mercy is, a, is the gift of compassion. And so people who have the gift of mercy will be found uh, serving the homeless, serving the poor, serving the imprisoned, serving the naked. Uh, they're in places where of great human need, and, and they're making a difference in those places, the gifts of mercy toward those who need it. And, and he says, do it with cheerfulness. And I think you know, I can understand a little bit of what he's saying here because it would be easy in those dark places of human need, human misery, uh, to lose enthusiasm, to lose cheerfulness. And Paul says, keep doing that with cheerfulness because you know for whom you are doing it. When you add all this up and all these notations that Paul puts on these gifts, Here's part of what I think he's saying. Whatever your gift happens to be, be all in. Be all in. Go for it. Don't hold back. Give it everything you've got. Because as you do that, you will come to understand more of who you are as God has designed you, as God has wired you. You can ask the question, well, how can I know what my spiritual gift is? Here are three three ways that you might begin to dial in on what that gift is. First of all, study the biblical lists. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, and, uh, and the one we're in today, Romans 12. Uh, look at those lists. See what's there. Uh, likelihood is that you will find something that's at least close to who you are, the way you're particularly wired. Come to understand what those gifts are, what they mean. Um, you know... Um, you could take a spiritual gifts inventory. There are a bunch of them out there. You can find one online. Uh, they're helpful, but they're only helpful if you're going to do something with them. They're, they're not helpful if you're only doing it as a matter of curiosity. What is my gift? And how can I put that in my list of options for my life? It's not the approach. Study the biblical list. Secondly, examine yourself. What interests you? Um, what, what kind of calls to you? You look at the life of the church and you say, man, I'd really like to do that. I'd really like to serve in those areas. I have some great thoughts for those areas. Another question is, what really bugs you? <laughs> you know, do you ever say, what's wrong with these people? You know, how come they haven't thought of this? Why aren't they serving in this area? Why aren't they doing these things? It's a great indication of your giftedness. Yeah, and, and you're needed simply because you're seeing something that others don't see. And then third, give them a test drive. Give them a test drive. And I, honestly, I think this is the most important one of all. Um, do something. Don't just sit there. Do something. Do something. Follow your inclinations. Follow your sense of curiosity or call or whatever it is that's tugging at you, and, and check it out. Go serve in that place. It's not a lifetime commitment, but go, go try some things out. See how it goes. Get some feedback from other people. You know, people, other Christians are going to be able to tell you a lot more about your giftedness, honestly, than, than, than you can on a lot of occasions because they're going to see how God works through you better than you can see it yourself. So ask some people that you trust. And then when it all comes down to it, just do it. Just do it.
in the power of the Holy Spirit, just do it. Sober self-assessment. Just do it. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks for this time together. Lord, may we be people who are living with a sober self-assessment that is informed by your word and by your spirit. And Lord, help us to be people that are about the work that you've called us to do, knowing that in that we find the greatest joy, the greatest fulfillment. We find who we really are. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.